Hi, everyone. I have a great interview coming up, but I forgot to share some important information during the interview. The interview is with Tony Alwick, really the creator of the Jobs to Be Done framework, and he has put together several interactive courses to help us understand Jobs to Be Done better and actually apply it. And he's making a course available starting September 5th, which we do talk about in the interview, but they also gave us a discount, which I forgot to share with you. So to enroll for that course with a 10% discount, you need to use the promo code CHAD. The details of this are at strategen.com. If you go to that website, click on the Jobs to Be Done link near the top and look into the courses. You'll find that there is a course starting September 5th to understand how Jobs to Be Done works, how to help your organization with it, and how to put the tools into practice. But use the CHAD discount or the CHAD promo code to receive that 10% discount. Now on to our normal interview time. Hi, this is Chad. I'm so glad to be part of your progress towards product mastery. We're on this journey together to create products that customers love. This episode and this podcast is made possible by the Rapid Product Mastery Experience. That's the RPM experience. This is a system I put together to help companies improve their product capability. It's really targeted towards product managers and anyone involved in product. Often it's a product VP that will say, hey, you know, we need to do a better job of caring for our product managers, kind of getting them on the same page together, helping them understand a common foundation of knowledge so that they can accelerate their work with the rest of our product people. And in the process, build some trust and collaboration along the way as well. There's a fantastic system for doing that. It's not just training, it, it does encompass those other pieces as well, those elements of building collaboration, trust, helping everyone be on the same page. Understanding not just what to do, but also why we do that work. It takes place over nine weeks. We meet virtually for one hour and 15 minutes a week. So nine weeks, 75 minutes a week, a new product capability for your organization. If you want to find out more about that, simply go to productmasterynow.com RPM. Now, today we're talking about a popular, and I think a, a somewhat misunderstood product management tool, that's Jobs To Be Done. Certainly you've heard about this before. Joining us is the originator, the OG of the Jobs To Be Done world, and that's Tony Olick. Now, I first discovered Tony through his book, What Customers Want, Using Outcome-Driven Innovation to Create Breakthrough Products and Services. And it was published while I was working on my PhD at Innovation. And it really resonated with why products fail, right, with the research I was doing as well. It is the innovation book that I have most gifted to others, and he's also the author of a more recent book called Jobs to be Done, good title for our topic today as well, Jobs to be Done, Theory to Practice. Both are very valuable resources for you to have in your library if you don't already have them. And this discussion is gonna examine some misconceptions about Jobs to be Done and approaches for using it better. I expect it to be really highly valuable for you. As a reminder, we do take detailed written notes of everything we discuss. We also prepare a one-page action guide to help you put into action the key takeaways that Tony is going to be sharing with us. You'll find those resources at productmasterynow.com slash Tony. That's T-O-N-Y. Tony, thank you so much for joining us. Chad, thanks for the invite. I certainly appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to get together. I do remember your outcome book, What Customers Want. What was really pivotal to me and had photocopied the introduction of that book. I don't know if that's allowed or not, but I photocopied the introduction of that book and shared it with several people just because the introduction was so powerful about explaining, you know, why is it we struggle so much in innovation, creating value and products that customers actually want? And it was really important. And that led into some of your other work. Now we often characterize more as jobs to be done. So first, just you know, my hat tip to thanking you for how much you have helped this innovation community, well, your experience and research and insights. 
Thanks, Chad. Yeah, it's certainly been good fun. I've enjoyed it. It's been a good journey, no doubt. This jobs to be done tool for product managers, you know, there's this natural appeal, right? You know, let's help customers get done what they want to get done, right? What is that thing? But we come across what looks like to me some different perspectives on it. And frankly, some of them I relate to, and some of them really don't resonate very well with me. One of those that people have looked into this at all was probably familiar with is from Bob Mozetta, previous guest on this podcast too. I thought we might start there and just talk about, you know, kind of what is his perspective about, and we're going to get to certainly what your perspective is about as we talk about this. Well, sure. So, you know, it's really been interesting over the years, you know, and just a little bit about my background. You know, I worked at IBM in a product role for years, about 10 years before I started Stratagen. And one of the first products I worked on was the IBM PC Junior, which was headlined in the Wall Street Journal the day after we introduced it as a flop. <laughs> and it was. It was a billion-dollar flop. And this is what got me interested in innovation. And what I thought that day, it's like, how do they know? How do they know so quickly that this was going to be a flop? You know, clearly they were using some criteria to judge the value of the product that we certainly didn't know of or didn't build to, right? And the thought was, if we could only know what criteria people are going to use to judge the value of our products well in advance. We could just design the products to meet the criteria, and then we would know that we're working on a winning product before it even goes into development. And I think that's the dream of every product manager, right? To conceptualize products and services that they know are going to win in the market before they even start developing them. So that's the angle that I came at with all this. And so it, then it became clear years later, of course, that you know, people buy products to get a job done. And you can study that job and make it the unit of analysis and think about it as a process, right? People are trying to get a job done, break down the process into steps and then understand how people measure success along each step of the way. Those are their outcomes or their needs. And by understanding what their needs are, well in advance, we can figure out which of those are unmet and then come up with solutions that address the unmet needs. Right. Sounds simple enough, right? That's the high level goal. But I think, you know, people have taken the, the jobs we've done theory and applied it in different ways. You know, I'm coming at it from an angle that's, you know, how do we create products that people want? And that's why the title of my book in 2005 was, you know, what customers want. You know, how do you create people, how do you create products that you know, people want? As opposed to making people want products, right? But it doesn't mean that jobs to be done is not useful in helping make people want products. And I think a lot of the uses of jobs to be done fall into that category, like the demand generation category is the way I like thinking about it. And as you said, you know, you can look at your product and say, well, why are people hiring a Snickers bar or a Milky Way bar or a milkshake or whatever? And go back and look at the job they're trying to get done and then say, well, if they're trying to get that job done, let's go tell other people who are trying to get that job done to buy our product because it gets that job done. It's nothing wrong with that. It's not, it, the purpose of that, of course, is demand generation. It's not product innovation, right? Uh, and so I, I, that's looking at it from the other lens, if you will. So the way I think about our approach, you know, once we know what needs are unmet and so on, and if you can come up with a solution that addresses the unmet needs, then you can certainly position it in a way that connects with customers because you're going to position it around the fact that you're satisfying those unmet needs. 
So the way I like coming at it, it, it serves a purpose for innovation, but it also it serves a purpose for marketing as well. So because you're basically creating demand because you're offering a product that customers want. The, the demand's already there. You don't really have to create it. You're just tapping into what already exists. Okay. So we're going to get into some more details on that. The reference to the Snickers versus Milky Way bar, that was an example that Bob shared and Bob has shared in other settings too, to help explain his perspective on jobs be done, which is, as you characterize it, that demand generation aspect, right? So what's going on before we even make the purchasing choice that kind of leads us down one path? Yeah, that's right. But what's interesting about that is it doesn't make the job to be done the unit of analysis it's actually studying the buyer's journey, if you will. Right. Right. In other words, there's someone using a product to get a job done. And what we, what we suggest is that you go study, go talk to that person and study the job they're trying to get done right, with that product. So the job truly is a unit of analysis. If you go to the buyer and ask him about the journey he's going on to buy a product, you're not learning about their job to be done. You're learning about the process of buying a product. Right. And that could be useful as well, because you can see the struggles that they have in making the purchase decision and so on. And you could come up with a better marketing and sales strategy that will help overcome those barriers. So, again, it's applying it for demand generation. And it's fine for that. It, it works for that. And, and like I said, our approach works for both. Right. Like once you, But it doesn't assume that it doesn't assume that people want the product that you have. Right. Because right. you really can't make people want products. If it's if the product is not getting the job done, it's not going to last very long in the marketplace. So at some point, you actually have to create products that people want. Right. So as I was getting ready for our discussion, I was on some popular product management forums looking at, you know, when people ask questions about jobs to be done, where do they send, you know, others to, you know, for resources? And thankfully, your name and your resources come up a lot. Then there's some others as well. And one that I actually haven't read this book, but Alan Clement apparently has a book on jobs to be done related theory and wrote an article. And it sounds like maybe his perspective, because this was recommended quite a bit as well, might be more in that demand generation perspective. So let me just read his definition because he said a definition of jobs to be done. He says a job to be done is the process a consumer goes through whenever she aims to change her existing life situation into a preferred one, but cannot because there are constraints that stop her. Maybe there's listeners that resonate with that and say, yep, spot on. I stumble over that a little bit. It sounds like the first part of that is certainly the journey aspect, right? Like, okay, there is some journey that leads up to purchasing decisions. And understanding that journey can certainly be helpful in how we position our products and the marketing aspect. Any thoughts, feedback on, on that? Well, I agree with you. I think it's more along the line of demand generation. It's understanding, you know, what progress, like they say, you know, what progress are they trying to make and what's that journey of making that progress. But uh, again, what that misses out on, it doesn't make the customer's job to be done, the unit of analysis. You know, people buy products to get a job done. Why are they buying that product? Let's study the job and figure out how to get the job done better. So it's just, it's not coming at it from the product management innovation angle. It's coming at it more from the demand generation marketing angle, I would say. So let me know if this is a fair way of thinking about this or not, right? Because I'm still getting my hands around as much as I love jobs to be done idea and what you've written about that. So get my hands around details, right? But I kind of think about jobs to be done originally in the 
perspective of Professor Levitt's, you know, well, well quoted statement, you know, people don't buy the quarter inch drill that they're trying to get a hole done, right? That's just the drill happens to be a tool to get the job done that they need job done, right? For some reason, they need a hole in their wall and the drill just happens to be a tool for that along the way. And I kind of think about that as the origins in some sense of this line of theory that has led to jobs to be done. Well, I view it that way as well. You know, when it finally clicked in my head that, yeah, people have measurable outcomes they're trying to achieve. It was because of that quote, because it gives you an option to see the world through two, two different lenses. Like you can see the world through the lens of the drill maker and go talk to customers about how to make better drills. And you can think you're in the drill market and all your competitors are drill makers. Or you could look at the market through the lens of the hole maker and realize there's a group of people out there that are trying to create a quarter inch hole. And they use many different Mm -hmm. products to try to create a quarter inch hole. And there's different types of competitors. So, you know, when you look at it through that lens, you realize you're in a different market and there's different competitors. It's just a, it's a, it's a brand new world, right? And from that perspective, you're able to compete much more effectively with all the other competing solutions that exist out there. So one other perspective on this, Clayton Christensen, which you knew and have done some work with in the past, there's the famous now milkshake story. So anyone that has looked into jobs we've done will find his videos on the milkshake story. And if you're going through the drive through early in the morning at a fast food restaurant and you order a milkshake, you know, why is that? And that's kind of what he was examining. First, I'm curious about your perspective on that. And also, I've heard that maybe this is more of a marketing story than, I don't know if there was an actual milkshake research done or not. I don't know if you have any insights on that. Well, let's get to that. But just the story itself, it's interesting because... It starts with a milkshake. You know, Clay talks about people buying products to get a job done and making the job the unit of analysis. But my critique of the story is that the milkshake story doesn't make the job the unit of analysis. Like if you, if from our perspective, we'd say, okay, people are buying milkshakes. So let's flip it around and figure out, well, what job are they trying to get done as they commute to work in the morning? Well, they're trying to get breakfast on the go. All right, so we would study the job of getting breakfast on the go and break it down into its parts and figure out where people are underserved and come up with a solution that would get the job done better. But in the milkshake story, it assumes a product up front. So the product actually becomes a unit of analysis, the milkshake. And the goal there is to try to sell more milkshakes, which again is a demand generation exercise. So what I see Clay doing in that exercise is he's talking about jobs to be done, but again, he's using a demand generation example as opposed to an example of how you'd apply it for the purpose of innovation. Yeah, which is a very different place to start, right? So if we start with my job is to get breakfast on the go, we look at things differently than why am I getting a milkshake in the morning? Right. See, because the goal of the innovator is to help a group of people, commuters, get a job done, get breakfast on the go. So that should be the lens in which you study the problem, if you will. Uh, You shouldn't be studying the milkshake, right? The milkshake is a solution. But the reason they're studying milkshakes is because their goal isn't to create the best product that people can consume on the go. Their goal is to sell more milkshakes. So they're starting with the milkshake in mind, and it becomes a demand generation exercise. So their goal is to figure out, well, why are people hiring milkshakes? 
well, they're on their long, boring commute, they're bored, they're this or that, all these different reasons. And then they say, well, if that's the reason, let's go talk to more customers and say, hey, if you're on a long, boring commute and you want something to do with your hand and you want to you know, stay you know, full for a couple of hours, then hire a milkshake. Again, all marketing and, and demand generation. But it fails to actually study the job to be done. And one of the core tenets of jobs theory is the job itself becomes a unit of analysis. And you know, that's the way I've always thought about it. Right. Okay. Let's go study the actual job that people are trying to execute. If it's getting uh, breakfast on the go, break it down into its component parts, understand all the outcomes, figure out where they're underserved, and then create a solution that gets the job done better. And it probably isn't going to be a milkshake, right? It's going to be something else. And I certainly can appreciate that product managers listening to this who have had growth responsibilities, they look at jobs be done in this more you know, demand generation context that some of the other practitioners have shared as a tool to help with the growth. But it really misrepresents the actual job, right? Their job as a growth product manager is, I want to increase the adoption sales of my existing product, which is all about demand generation and marketing. Yeah, that's exactly it. And so it's, you know, I think it, a job to be done is certainly a useful tool for that. It doesn't help you create a better product. And so if you're going to go if you're a product manager, I would assume you're probably responsible for the next generation product as well, or the product portfolio or multiple products. So, you know, putting on the lens that just says, how do I sell more of my current products is great for the short term and certainly encourage that. But trying to understand where people struggle to get the underlying job done is critical to your success as a future product manager, because there's other people out there that are going to be studying this at the job level and understanding where the unmet needs are and, you know, working to address them with new solutions. I'm curious, since you have some insights into what goes on in the space. So Clayton Christensen, you know, father of modern innovation, I have great respect for his contributions. And he was particularly good at framing more complicated concepts in rather easy to grasp ideas. When I heard that maybe the milkshake story was more representing ideas and not actual research that occurred, I thought, at least that, that makes some sense to me, just uh, having been such a fan of Clayton and his work and how he is good at framing ideas, right? But I'm curious to know, did it actually, was there a milkshake research project or not? Were they standing in line literally asking people why they bought a milkshake? Chad, we can speculate. I don't know the answer, okay. uh, but I, I, you know, based on what I've read, in Clay's last book, Competing Against Luck, they talk about the fact that the results of that work were never implemented by any firm. Right. So someone pointed that out to me, and I thought, well, that's interesting. And I always felt like it's a great story, but it's not necessarily representative of what you would do in practice. So I think I'd put it more in that category of a marketing story. Because there, you know, I guess if you did do that, you might get 4x or 7x increase in sales very quickly. But there's no evidence that shows that actually happened. So it's a great story. Yeah, it tells the story. And it's a good reminder as product people, we need to tell a story. So, you know, finding a way to position what you're trying to push forward in your organization and a story that is compelling to people to take interest in is certainly important to us. Well, it's easy to understand and you know, it gets the basic concept across. Absolutely. And unfortunately, it always makes me want to have a milkshake when I hear it. So, 
but I guess that's okay every now and then. Okay, so let's dive into the jobs to be done. You've been using this phrase, you know, the unit of analysis is the job to be done. You know, what is that need of the customers and how do we kind of see along the way? Are we doing a good job of meeting those needs or not? I was hoping that you could take us through an example of jobs be done as you've applied it to an actual problem and help us kind of uncover the key steps in that process. Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. So I'm going to pick one that I've always found interesting because the company was on track, part of Kroll on track. And so they were going into the electronic evidence discovery business. This was before there was electronic evidence discovery. And this is the market where, you know, if you're a company and there's a lawsuit and you have to go get data through the discovery process that's sitting all over your business, they would help you do that. And what was interesting about them is they had an inherent advantage in the space because they had a technology that was really good at extracting information off hard drives because they were really in the hardware data extraction business where they could, in data repair, they could pull it off damaged hard drives. Hmm. They thought, well, we're already serving IT people in large companies. Let's, Let's get into this business. So they attempted twice and failed twice. And then Ben Allen, the CEO of of OnTrack at the time, had read my book and gave me a call over one weekend and said, Tony, we need your help trying to figure this out. And what we quickly discovered is that they had a misconception about what their market is. And I see this in so many instances where people don't define the market correctly. In fact, Our research says that most companies, people can't even agree on how to define a market, which I find very interesting. But through the Jobs We Done lens, a market's defined as a group of people trying to get a job done. So what was interesting is they thought the group of people that were trying to get the job done were the IT people that they had been working with for years right, in these companies. And so they worked with them. They created a tool that would extract data off hard drives. But it turns out that wasn't the real customer. The customer was now the legal teams in those organizations. And the legal teams weren't trying to get data off hard drives. What they were trying to do was to find data that would support or refute a case. That was their job to be done. So the job executor was no longer the IT person. It was the legal team who's trying to extract data uh, or find data that would support or refute a case. Now, once they realized that, they took the data extraction technology and added search capability in with it as well. So now instead of just giving them all the data, they gave them the tools they needed to actually search through it to find data that would support and refute the case. That propelled them to success. Uh, and it was very interesting because that market was so highly underserved, you know, certainly in need of automation. And there were about 65 or so unmet outcomes that recovered out of the 100 or so in total. And we laid them out in priority order. So we did the quantitative research. First, we did the qualitative research to capture all those statements. Then we did the quantitative research to figure out which ones were most important, least satisfied. And then we had our list. You know, this became their innovation strategy, was to focus on this list of outcomes in priority order year after year to get the job done better and better. So their initial version of the product addressed about 25 of those 60-plus unmet outcomes. And over the next five or six years or so, they just went down the list and addressed the next five or 10 unmet needs and then the next five or 10, which made it literally impossible for the competitors to catch up because they were on the most efficient path to growth is the way I like saying this. Like that's the dream of every product manager. I want to know in priority order, 
what needs are most unmet across the biggest percentage of the customer population, right? And if you know the answer to that question, you can start you know, focusing your efforts on hitting them one by one in a priority order that you're always focused on the right thing, right? You're never wasting time and resources on things that don't matter to the customer. And so that led them to appear on the Gartner Magic Quadrant. I think it's what it's called for about 10 years straight, 10 years running. They just nailed it, right? Because they created a solution that got the entire job done that the customer was trying to get done. So to dive into that a little bit more, I love the example. I'm actually familiar with OnTrack. I was a, a senior consultant at LexisNexis during these days when this forensics, data forensics thing was kind of growing and, and becoming something important. I first appreciate the misconception of who we're selling to. Another example I've come across that was, I think, from the 90s was a company called WebSense. Right? And WebSense monitored the traffic, the internet traffic that employees are using in companies. They were trying to sell their solution to IT people because that's the people that would install WebSense. But the people that actually had the need, the outcome they wanted was HR, who was responsible for measuring compliance of employees, not doing things they shouldn't do right during the workday, like spending time on web websites that were not company related. Somewhere on track, right? Who is our audience? Who's that market? And then once we discover who actually has the bigger set of needs, coming up with that list of outcomes. And you said something in passing that was really important. I don't want product managers to miss that, you know, the, through your work, you came up with 60 prioritized unmet needs, 60 you know, outcomes that would add value to the customer, right? A roadmap of what to be done. And one thing that we always struggle with as product managers, it seems like, is these discussions about, well, which feature do we implement next? And is that feature really important or is it not important? And how do we figure that out? So having this list is golden. Can you give us a little more information about the actual discovering of those outcomes? You know, how was this set up? Who did you ask? What did you ask them? Sure. So in that case, you know, the target customer were the legal teams. So we went to the legal teams and first confirmed what is the job they're trying to get done. And that's where we learned that, yeah, you know, what they're trying to do here is find information that would support, refute the case. And then we sat with a half dozen or so uh, members of the legal team and went through our process. We asked them to break down that job into steps and in creating what we call a job map. And so we laid it out step by step, and then we get into the very specific outcomes they're trying to achieve. This is what we call their the needs, the metrics they're using to measure success when getting a job done, like minimize the likelihood of overlooking an important piece of information, or you know, minimize the time it takes to find something that would support the allegations in the case. Some, and there's dozens of these metrics, and this is true in every market. There's usually between... 50 and 150 different metrics that people use to measure success when getting the job done. You want to take the time to learn all those outcomes, not just two or three, right? All of them. I think what a lot of teams are, end up doing is they'll hear one unmet need and go put a feature in place to address the one unmet need and then hear another one and just have these incremental improvements. When in fact, right up front, there might be 60 unmet needs, right? And if you knew that... It, you can satisfy 20 of them all at once. And all of a sudden you have a breakthrough product innovation as opposed to something that's offering incremental improvement. So it's really important to know what all those needs are up front, not just a handful. 
then when we quantify them, that's when we put a survey out in the field. It went to, I think in that case, 270 legal teams or members of legal teams, and they told us which needs were important and not well satisfied with current solutions, which led us to figure out where the big opportunities were. And that pointed to the 60 plus unmet needs that became the target for their value creation efforts. To quantify that many needs is not a small feat. And I'm curious how you actually go through that. If I have a hundred possible needs that I want to rank in order of importance, the absolute way to do that would be to use pairwise comparison, which would take you hours to do as you can compare every pair. How do you do that through a survey? Well, it's interesting, Chad, that you mentioned that because we would never use pairwise comparison or forced choice or any method that asks people to make choices between their needs. And the reason is this is the wrong time for people to make choices. You don't say, do I want this need satisfied versus that one? What I want to know is if there's 65 unmet needs, I want to know that there's 65 and I want to know how unmet they are. Right. The actual trade-offs come in solution space much later on. Right. So our general rule is we don't make trade-offs in need space or problem space. We're going we're gonna to make trade-offs in solution space. So what that means is we put surveys out to the 270 folks. They have the 100-plus outcomes listed in there. They're broken into sections by job step. They're laid out side by side in a very efficient manner. We've had 30 years of practice at this. It works very well. And we simply ask them to tell us the importance of each outcome and the level of satisfaction. And once we've got that information from all those different folks, we can figure out quantitatively which needs are unmet and to what degree. And the basic calculation is simple. If the need is very important and the difference between the importance and satisfaction is great, we say that's unmet, right? And the bigger the difference, the more unmet it is. And so then we can highlight those 60-plus unmet needs and figure out where we need to go focus to create value. Very good. We'll talk about how you find out more details about actually constructing such a thing in a moment. I do want to ask you something. As we've gone through this, it's clear that this is a process, right? This is a process that can, people can learn, can be applied. But it's a process with some moving pieces in it, right? There's some details that are very important. Clearly, it's important to you to be specific about these. You know, what is an outcome? What is that actual unit of measure of a job to be done, et cetera? There has been a criticism that has uh, people have shared about your work at times, which is, well, you know, Tony, he has this consulting company, Stratagen. And so they're making this whole job to be done thing a little bit overly complicated, more than it really needs to be, because they want to do the work themselves. What do you think of that criticism? I've heard the criticism as well, and I find it interesting because, you know, what's happening here is it's not as if we're taking something simple and making it more complex, right? Innovation is complex and it's inherently complex. And what we've worked on for decades is to try to make it more simple. So we've been working on creating the frameworks that simplify it, the structures, and you know, how do you define a need? How do you define a job statement? How do you create a job map? How do you build that survey? All we're doing at a high level is trying to figure out what market are we in? What are the customer's needs? Which are unmet? And are there segments of people with different unmet needs? And with that information, you can make a whole variety of decisions downstream. Now, how do I better position what I have? How do I improve what I have? Are there gaps in my portfolio? And so on. So we're taking a process that, we, we it sounds simple, the way I just described it, right? This is all we're doing, but there's so many nuances to it. And right. here's something I find really interesting, Chad. 
in most companies, most product teams, 90% of them, there is no agreement on what a customer need even is. Now think about that for a second, right? Because everyone's of course going to say, yeah, we're trying to satisfy customer needs, but if a team can't even agree on what a need is, then how can they agree on what the needs are and which needs are unmet? And if there's segments of people with different unmet needs and what solution is best in that situation? And of course the answer is they can't, right? And this is why innovation is so extremely difficult and complex, right? And the other component here is it's not as if customers have two or three needs, right? These metrics they use to measure success when getting a job done are anywhere from 50 to 150 in number, right? It is complex right. and that's just the way it is, right? So I think we've done a pretty good job of laying out the frameworks and the rules and the discipline that's needed to get there. It's just that the process is complex. Uh, and if it weren't, I guess there'd be a lot more successful innovators out there. You know, one of the reasons why I love that first book I mentioned, What Customers Want, Using Outcome-Driven Innovation to Great Breakthrough Products and Services. First part of the book does such a great job of just explaining why we fail to deliver value to customers, right? Why do we miss the market times? And what drove me to get the PhD was I was running into these situations where we apparently did the same thing as a team to deliver a product to customer, and we would hit it out of the park, and they were excited and happy, and, you know, we did a great job. And then the next time we would do what we thought was the same thing and no, you know, it was a flop, right? You know, foul ball, you did go anywhere. And I got fascinated about why was there that difference? And so that, that drove me back to study this more. And the second part of the book, and not like your book is in two parts, this is where I think about it in my head, laid out the process, like innovation is a process. And as an engineer, I love the formula approach to this, right? And so there's a formula for innovation in that book. And the instructions are there to put this into practice and now you've continued that on with the, your Jobs to Be Done book as well. And so while I think from the outside, when you first look at this and you go, gosh, there's a lot of parts in there and this looks very complicated and all these tools. As you said, innovation itself is complicated, right? <laughs> Why was my team doing a great job some of the time and not other times when we thought we were doing the same work? And understanding some of those details are really important. Turns out you have started doing some courses with cohorts about diving into this further. Can you tell us more about what that's like? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we've been talking with clients over the years about helping them build innovation capabilities. You know, many of them want to adopt the ODI philosophy and create practitioners that operate internally and you know, build out their own teams. So we've been mm -hmm. working to help them do exactly that. And, you know, through that experience, we've gone through a number of iterations on courses and training, and we've really learned um, a lot in terms of how to even make this more simple, if you will, because it is complex. And we broke it down into, I'd say, four main areas. It's really helped me to think about how to explain jobs to be done and outcome-driven innovation to people. The first is at your definition level. What I like to say here is there's going to be a mindset shift inside the organization in order to think about innovation the right way. I'll say the right way, right? Not the ideas first approach where you brainstorm lots of ideas and hope some of them will create value for customers. Let's do it the scientific way, right? Let's understand the markets we want to enter, figure out what the needs are, which are unmet, and then come up with solutions that address them. And I think most companies want to head down the needs first path, but they can't see how to get there. And so the first course is all about this new mindset. And it's really the jobs to be done lens. Like when you look through that lens, you define a market as a group 
of people getting a job done. You define a need as the measurable outcomes. You define segments as subgroups within a, a market with different unmet needs. And so things look different, right? And if you can just flip that switch, get that mindset shift, you just start thinking differently about everything else. So that's the first piece. The second course is laid out, we call it the fundamentals, and it introduces all the frameworks and structures. It doesn't tell you all the rules yet or how to use them, but it just explains why they're there. You know, why do we have a job map? Why do we structure a job statement the way we do? Why is there always a verb that comes first? What's the purpose of the contextual clarifier? You know, why do we structure an outcome statement the way we do? You know, why do we set up our surveys the way we do? So it gets at the structural elements that make the process work and effective. The third course gets into the rule set. You know, we're trying to turn innovation into a rules-based discipline. So we have the frameworks. Now, what are the rules we have to follow in order to make innovation more predictable? And that's what the third course is all about. So it goes through the entire process from defining the customers to defining the needs, putting the survey together, getting the results back, building the innovation strategy. And it lays it out from that perspective, the rules to follow to be successful at each. And the fourth piece is really aimed at practitioners who want to, or have been asked to, they may not want to, but they've been asked to go talk to customers through this lens and get information and drive the research effort inside the organization. And that's hard too. You know, again, we're trying to make this as simple as possible, but we've learned that once people understand the perspective through the right lens, once they understand the frameworks, once they get the rules down, it's only then that they can be successful as interviewers in front of customers trying to gather those insights. And you know, what we saw a lot of teams do up front is they would just jump right into interviews, really not knowing what they were in for or were trying to try to do or trying to capture, right? The things about these customer interviews, they become much more effective when you know, as the interviewer, what input you're trying to collect, right? They're even more effective when the interviewee knows what you're trying to collect. So the way we've designed all our interview techniques is extraordinarily interesting. It's taken years to develop this, but you know, it's more like an immersion sessions where we work with a small group of customers for several hours to define the job steps, the outcomes. And during that time period, they learn what inputs you're looking for because they're actually seeing them up on the screen as you're typing them in. And the process becomes a collaboration, if you will. It's really, in my mind, been a breakthrough in the way the qualitative research is completed and how we can capture all this information. So all that's part of that fourth course. And then it goes on to explain how to get the surveys in the field and analyze the data and run the segmentation analysis and all those good things that are required to figure out which needs are unmet. So laying it out like that, I think is it's very exciting. It's, I think it's, again, simplifying something that's complex so you can step into it and you don't put yourself in a position of going to do interviews before you're ready, right? There's a lot behind it, right? That's, right. it's like, you know, just like anything else. You want to learn the basics before you go, go up there and, and, and get ready for the game, right? You got to practice a little bit first and that's what it's all about. I think these courses also help to address that criticism I asked you about earlier as well, right? That it, indeed, the, the, this is something that can be taught. It's a discipline, jobs will be done, discipline that can be taught. And indeed, you're teaching it, right? And early on, you had the books, so the one I've talked about, and then jobs will be done. 
I have seen a company take your outcome book and put that into practice and have a level of success with it, right? But it misses a lot of the nuance. And now the 30 years of experience of doing this for a number of organizations, which we would get exposure to in these courses about really how to make things work and learn from that, those years of experience and not make some of the mistakes that you might make without knowing any better. Yeah, that's exactly right, Chad. You know, the devil's in the detail, just like any other process, right? And there's, there are a lot of nuances here. I wish there weren't, but we've discovered them through trial and error, basically, as we've approached this year, you know, after year. And so uh, you know, we've got the rules in place now where we think the process is pretty rock solid, right? And so now what we've been applying it to is to return, we're turning it into some other direction, market selection, for example. You know, how can you choose between different markets, right? That's something that comes before you would do ODI. Or how do we get into adjacent markets? What I really find interesting here is an adjacent market has to be adjacent to something, right? So it's adjacent to some other market. So how do you define that other market that that you're describing, right? Now, once you define that market as a group of people getting a job done, an adjacency becomes really obvious. An adjacency is the same group of people getting a different job done or a different group of people getting the same job done. Right. And now it gives you this natural way to strategize and where you need to go next in order to grow. So we're excited about that too. And it's, it's been a very popular topic amongst executives. Every executive wants to grow their market and find new markets. Go after that for sure. You have a course coming up starting here in three weeks on September 5th. And this is not a sponsored podcast. I am delighted and glad to tell listeners about this and help treasure and promote this only because I have personally found so much value out of the resources that you have provided, you know, throughout my career in innovation. So I know there's going to be great value in this course. It sounds like this one coming up on September 5th is the fundamentals course. Tell us what that really is about, if that's true, and how the course is going to be constructed. So it's actually the, two, the first two courses. So mm. the introductory course is the prerequisite to the fundamentals course. So it will include some a live kickoff with the, uh, the cohort so they can ask questions and get prepared for a successful event. There'll be some live uh, Q&A events throughout as well. But the key here is to take them through those first two modules. One is the mindset shift so we can see how innovation looks very different through this jobs be done lens and then get into all those frameworks so we can get into how customers are defined and how how job statements are structured and how the job map structured how outcomes are structured the survey and so on so we'll get them very comfortable with how the approach works how it might work for them so they can decide if they want to apply it how they want to apply it if they want to be practitioners and to go go further but if nothing else, what I would say is that that introductory course is the mindset shift. And if you can just get people to think about innovation differently, I think that's more than 50% of the battle right there because they'll start changing right. their behaviors once they realize that they can see things through this other lens or through this perspective. And listeners, this is a big deal for all of our organizations. I'm surprised how often that I've had the great pleasure of helping companies, brands that I you know, know and love, and I feel somewhat inadequate going into them to say, well, obviously you're so good at innovation, you know, what, what's going on? And then quickly uncover that's actually, there's areas to improve, right? And also with one of my hats, I teach an executive MBA course 
And everyone in that course is a leader in their organization. And every single time, these leaders are wanting to improve the innovation of their organization. If you're listening and you say, gosh, I want to be that person to help us push forward a little bit and think about innovation more purposely. And how can we do a better job of satisfying customers, actually reaching their outcomes that they want? This is a really great way to put some tools under your belt. And Tony, you may have some things to add on to that. Chad, you know, I thought you did a great job of talking about that. I'll just leave it at that. Okay. And your organization was kind enough to give our listeners a discount if they want to be part of this course. I highly recommend everyone, if you're in a product role and you want to personally get better at innovation, delivering value for customers, and help your organization get better at this, please check this out. And it's easy to find their courses, which is at the Stratagen website. That's strategyyn, so S-T-R-A-T-E-G-Y-N.com. And you'll find up there in the top right, there's an area about jobs to be done courses. If you want to go directly to it, strategen.com slash fundamentals dash class. And I'll make sure I have all the links in the show notes. So if you're listening to this on my website, you can go and find all the links there. But just go check out strategen.com, click on the jobs to be done link at the top, and you'll find information on the courses. Great opportunity to really figure out of the different perspectives on jobs be done. If you're in that position often of figuring out, gosh, of all the features we could implement, which one should we do? This tells you what are the things you actually need to solve for the customer and in what order you should be doing them to create more value for the customer. So excellent tools. Again, the strategen.com, find out more about that. And it starts in three weeks. And this is a live cohort to go through and interact with Tony and really learn how to, what the tools are to make up jobs to be done theory. Tony, you know that we love quotes around here. And I always ask guests for innovation quotes you've been on before and you have shared with us. What did you bring up for us today? And what does that mean to you? Given the the direction today took, and it was really interesting, a quote that I heard from Peter Drucker years and years ago, the aim of marketing is to know and understand the customer so well that the product or service sells itself. And I think that's really fitting for our conversation today as well, given the demand side, the demand generation versus you know building what people want, right? And I, I think this says it all. Let's create products that people want and not make people want products. And that's, that's the purpose of marketing. Yeah, understand what the customer wants, understand what they need. I have been in positions where we are trying to educate our customer on our solution. Like, no, really, you need this product and the, you're just asking for pain, right? So instead, figure out what your customer's unmet needs are, what the outcomes are they want to achieve and satisfy them. Yeah, if you do it well, you won't have to market. It sells itself. So in addition to the course we talked about, you have a number of resources. And I saw on your website, you know, one reason why Jobs to be Done, your new, your more recent book, Jobs to be Done, Theory to Practice, is not the most gifted book I now have provided people. It's because you've still been providing for free on the website. So I want to let listeners know about that. Where can people find out about the resources that you have available? On our strategy website, there's a resource center under under the resources page. There's also the medium site, my medium site at jobs to be done.com. And the free book, it's ebook and we have the audio book as well, is jobs to be done book.com with of course
course, the hyphen's in all the right places. Okay, so we have stratagen.com, main website, and then jobstobedone.com with hyphens in between the words. That's right. And jobstobedonebook.com for the free book. Excellent. And as I looked this morning, the free book was also on the Stratagen site. So a place to get that. But excellent resources for us practitioners to do a better job actually serving the needs of our customers. As I always say, product mastery, we are on this path to helping us, all of us, figure out how to create products our customers love. And Jobs Will Be Done is a really important tool for that. Tony, once again, thanks for being back on the podcast with us. Chad, thanks so much. It's always a pleasure. And listeners, if you want a written summary of anything we talked about, we take the full notes for you. We also do prepare that one-page action guide to help you put into action immediately the key takeaways that Tony shared with us. You'll find those today at productmasterynow.com slash Tony, T-O-N-Y. Everyone, as always, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.